Welcome to another edition of the Portland, Oregon OWASP Chapter Podcast. Today we have a very, very special guest, Adam Shostak. Adam, as you know, is a leading expert on threat modeling and a consultant, entrepreneur, technologist, author, and game designer. He's a member of the Black Hat Review Board and helped create the CVE and many other things. He currently helps many organizations improve their security via Showstack and Associates and advises startups, including as a Mach 37 star mentor. While at Microsoft, he drove the auto run fix into Windows Update and was a lead designer of the SDL threat modeling tool version 3 and created the Elevation of Privilege game. Adam is the author of Threat Modeling, Designing for Security, and the co-author of the New School of Information Security. Adam will be in downtown Portland, Oregon next Wednesday, October 9, 2019, for the monthly OWASP chapter meeting. He'll be talking about threat modeling in 2019. This will be hosted by the fine folks at New Relic from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. If you plan on going, please register at meetup.com. Just look for the Portland, Oregon OWASP chapter page for Adam Showstack. Interviewing Adam today is David Quisenberry, Ben Perkle, and yours truly, John Whiteman. Adam, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's truly an honor. It's a pleasure to be here. So Adam, InfoSec personalities such as Daniel Meisler and other uh, experts in the field commonly describe something that they call the cybersecurity hiring gap, where while there are a lot of job positions available, they remain unfilled. Some even go as far to claim that as by uh, 2021, there will be over 3.5 million unfulfilled cybersecurity positions worldwide. Uh, the reasoning behind that is because no company is looking for someone who's inexperienced to protect their data. Do you believe this is a legitimate issue? And if so, how do you think people just entering the workforce can overcome it? So let me take that in two parts. I don't believe that there are three and a half million unfilled jobs in security. I think that if we, no one has described to me what those are or why those are things that people should be doing rather than code. So I'm skeptical, but I do think there's a real issue with the way that we hire that I see what are listed as entry-level jobs that require two to four years of experience. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think that thinking clearly about what you need, thinking about a growth path for your employees thinking about ways in which you can train people to go from school or an apprenticeship program to a job, those are the companies that are going to succeed. The ones that have unrealistic expectations are going to continue to suffer. Adam, thanks so much for being on this call with us. Uh, This is Quiz, who's organizing the event next week. My question to you was, uh, I read your book, Threat Modeling. It's been out for a while. It's an awesome book. Um, and I'm curious from your perspective, where where you think, you know, from your experience, where you think we're getting better as an industry and where we are getting complacent as it relates to threat modeling and more importantly, or as importantly, threat mitigation? So I think we're getting a lot better. I think we're seeing an explosion of tools for threat modeling in code, representing the threat models in code, testing them in code super exciting. I think the place where we're falling down is there's confusion between threat intelligence and threat modeling. People are confusing threat modeling and threat intelligence. And threat intelligence is feeds of 
indicators, IP addresses, checksums, other things. It's very reactive. It is looking to see what's happening in the world to make sure it's not happening to you, and that's a fine plan. And when I think about threat modeling, I think about things we can do before we've written a line of code, before we've started deploying new containers, new servers, new server lists, so that we can prevent the problems before they they reach us. And so I think the place where we have complacency or we're falling down is this focus on reactive threat intelligence rather than proactive threat modeling. So building off of the theme of threat modeling, as a student, um, I think a lot about, well, as a student who wants to get into security, I think a lot about what type of qualities a company might want in me that would make me more, say, per se, appetizing than the next applicant. Um, mm -hmm. So I was wondering, uh, since a lot of your knowledge and background comes from the work in threat modeling, um, so would it be something that you would say that students in academia should prioritize learning over something else? So learning, learning is easy. Learning over something else is, is the tricky bit. And so tell me, are, are you in a security program now? No, I'm actually in a general computer science program. And that's why it's even more important for someone like me, because I need to be able to keep on um, diving into the world of security on my own. So choosing exactly what and then managing my time to find what skill I should work on is uh, one of the bigger questions that I have to ask myself. It's a great question, and I'm glad you're asking yourself this. I think that the big, the big value of threat modeling and the ability to threat model is it gives us a systematic and structured way to think about the security of a system as a whole. And a great many of the technical skills you can acquire allow you to go deep in particular areas. But if you don't have some ability to look at the forest and understand a system as a whole, you know, to mix a metaphor just a little bit, it's as if you you're making a collection of hammers, everything is going to look like a nail. You, I think it's important to have a varied toolbox and a way to think about how to use the tools in that toolbox in order to make good decisions and deliver on a, a, some sort of useful deliverable. I think threat modeling is the way to see the system as the whole and make sure you're using the right tool for the right purpose. Got it. So threat modeling is more of a conglomeration of all the tools in a toolbox that we use to build something that we can reuse rather than just a tool in its individual concept. Threat modeling might be the blueprints, might be the plan that you're building too. And so you use a saw to cut something and then a hammer to attach it to something else and a plane to straighten it out and then sandpaper to make it smooth. But if you just pick up a plane at random and a piece of wood, well, what are you doing there? Adam, do you mind talking a little bit about um, overcoming objections to threat modeling, particularly around resources and uh, you know the, the inevitable after two or three times of, of doing it, what's the value of this and, and how to encourage well. companies to <laughs> stay the course? So 
So I've never had anyone ask me what's the value of this after two or three times. Um, and, and so that may just be a matter of focusing in on, and, you know, I've, I do have a lot of experience and so I can, I can reorient a group pretty quickly to doing more useful work. To me, the way I tend to sell threat modeling is that threat modeling is the way to get a strategic overview of what we're working on, to systematically go through it, to find a structured analysis of here are the parts, and to plan all of your other security work. And if you're not getting value out of it, I strongly suggest thinking about the three main questions in threat modeling. What are we working on? What can go wrong? What are we going to do about it? Which lead, And then the fourth question is, did we do a good job? If you're not answering those first three questions in your first threat modeling meeting, you're off on some other bit that you've read somewhere is important to threat modeling, step back. Answer those three questions. If at the end of a couple of sessions you haven't gotten value out of it, do a retrospective. Ask what went well, what went poorly, what can we do to make this more valuable? Because to me, this is this is one of those cornerstones of how we do better. Do you want to can you give me a specific example, maybe? of an objection or a failure that we can talk about and how we might overcome that? Yeah, you know, I don't have any right off the top of my head, but it seems to me that uh, where I've seen it pop up, and I'm, I'm still newer in, in the software engineering field, is um, in smaller companies where you you have limited staff, you have limited time that you're trying to develop features, and security mm-hmm. might not be the, the primary concern, but it still is a concern. Um, just getting, you know, getting everyone on the same page where that, that time mm. together, you know. So a lot of times when people are doing threat modeling, they feel that for each feature, they need to build a diagram. They need to go through a list of threats. It's not the case. For some features where you're working with the same data you were working with before, you're updating your algorithm to process it more effectively, but it's coming from the same places, you're storing it in the same places, it's not adding a new trust boundary. That's all the threat modeling you need for that feature. It can be super fast. It can be part of a scrum meeting. It can be part of a user story. Or you might say, hey, we're going to start taking in data from this new source. Oh, well, I bet I think we should think about the security. We should go a little bit deeper. So maybe one of the reasons that people resist threat modeling is they see it as this heavyweight thing. Doesn't need to be heavyweight. Doesn't need to be slow. You can do it for some features in minutes. For other features in which are more complex, you can still do a useful threat model and find things that you need to think about in the course of half an hour or an hour. Mm-hmm. doesn't have to be a, a two or three hour meeting. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, anything that's a two or three hour meeting requires a lot of justification. One of my other questions is as a chapter, we have a, a wide range of, of people from novice to experienced um, and everything in between. 
how would you describe data flow diagrams to someone new to application development and threat modeling? So data flow diagrams are almost exactly like whiteboard diagrams with just a little bit more structure. We use uh, squared off rectangles or boxes to represent external entities, anything outside of your control. They have pointy corners, pointy elbows. They can hurt you. We use rounded rectangles for your code. Data flows connect to those and connect to data stores. I usually draw drums for those, you know, because we all store, still store our information on uh, spinning iron drives. And then we add trust boundaries, which show where different principles, different users interact. And that's all the formality you need. You don't need to draw this in draw.io or OmniGraffle or something like that. You can keep it very informal, and a data flow diagram looks an awful lot like your whiteboard diagram. Adam, you you just stated it, and but also, of course, in your book, the, the four questions that people should ask when threat modeling, again, what we're working on, what can go wrong, and what we're going to do about it. And then finally, did we do a good job? In my experience, though, it's often that last question that falls short because once the threat model is created, we forget about it until something goes wrong, like a zero-day vulnerability. How can we do a better job at answering, did we do a good job? So there's a there's a couple of ways to do it. The first one is to just check your work. Do you have some sort of diagram that's currently accurate? Do you have a list of threats? Doesn't need to be in a separate thing. It can be in a spec. It can be in user stories. Do you have things that you're going to do about it that you're tracking as bugs? Do you have a query that helps you find the, f- the bugs that were found by threat modeling? Do you do retrospectives? Do you sit down and say, did we do that well? Did we get value out of it? How can we do it better? And another thing that I've taken to recently that I find really helps is I do surveys using the net promoter score method. So I ask people, would you recommend threat modeling to a friend or colleague? And I measure developer satisfaction. And when it's not high, I go talk to people about why and what we can do about it. What is that net promoter? Is that, is, it's like a postmortem type of question once teams go through that process? Net promoter score is a marketing thing. I think, I don't remember where it was invented, but it, companies use it to measure how satisfied their customers are. That's interesting. That's a, that's a neat way of getting some post data, which at least for me, trying to make decisions moving forth, unless something goes wrong, here you have something uh, that at least you're, you're checking it along the way. Even part of maybe is due diligence from that. Yeah. And for, for speed, I'm not going to delve deep into net promoter score, but if you do a search on those words, you find a lot very quickly on the methodology. You know, SurveyMonkey supports it directly. So you can just say, put in a net promoter score question here and it will calculate the values for you. It's got some, some, you know, you get one point for every nine or 10 and you lose a point for everything below six and then you munge it together. Um, but there's a lot of support for it on the internet. It's easy to find. Adam, uh, do you mind talking a little bit about the changes you've seen with threat modeling with the increase of personal data collection and exposure in kind of the current app world we live in? Sure. So 
GDPR has been great for people trying to threat model. GDPR, the new European general data private data protection regulations, require companies to track their data flows. And as we've discussed, data flows are one of the primary ways in which we think about answering the question, what can go wrong? What are we working on? Excuse me. And because we have to track that for GDPR, it gives us a leg up when we want to start doing security threat modeling because somebody's already had to collect that data. And so I think it's a great time and that the changes that are happening make it easier than it ever has been to start threat modeling. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so here, here's another question for you, Adam. Um, again, I'm, I'm newer to the, the field. And one of the things that I heard back in college, well, two things. One, rake and you'll get leaves, dig, get diamonds. And the other <laughs> one is build a well before you need it. So what are, what are some of the books, white papers, lectures, thought leaders that you find yourself going back to again and again um, for wisdom, for clarity, for insight? And it doesn't have to be InfoSec related or security related. So that's a, that's a really interesting question. There's, there's not a huge number of things I go back to again and again, because there's always so much new to go out and read about and discover. Mm. But one thing that I do read once a year is a talk by Richard Hamming, who was a computer scientist. He got his start in the fifties, invented Hamming weights and other things like that, that we no longer really think about a lot. And he's got a lovely talk entitled You and Your Research. And he talks about how to do important research. And even if you're not a researcher, his his framework of understand what the important problems in the field are, have a couple that you want to be working on, Because if you only have one, you might get stuck and have nothing to do. If you've got a couple, you can set one aside. Mm -hmm. When you get stuck on the one you're working on, you pick up the other one again, and maybe you have some new insight. And I think it's a great talk and a very powerful framework for thinking about not only what are the important problems in the field, one of the things he points out is... If you're not working on important problems, you cannot be doing important research, um, except by accident. And so I think that's a great talk, and it helps me organize my thinking about what I'm working on. That's great. I found it. Thank you. You're welcome. Adam, do you think threat modeling can ever be fully automated, say through AI or some other kind of technology without human interaction? And if this is possible, are there things that concern you about this? So do you think programming can ever be fully automated? I I think you need people. Uh, well, there, there you go. You know, I, I think, <laughs> I think that threat modeling is in a lot of ways as big as programming. Right In programming, we have writing code, we have testing, 
we have different languages, we have different editors, we have different compilers, we have Agile versus Waterfall. Threat modeling is the way we think about the security of the systems that we're building. And just like we need people to translate the requirements and the goals of the system into code, there's always going to be a piece which requires a little bit of human thought about what we're doing from a security perspective. Now, that's not to say that we can never automate anything. There's a lot of interesting research in finding flaws automatically, in finding security flaws automatically, and I think that's going to reduce the burden on humans. I think that as languages and frameworks get better, the set of problems that the programmer needs to care about goes down because the framework takes care of, for example, SQL injection or cross-site scripting because no developer should ever need to think about those elevation of privilege sort of attacks. But I think there always will be a degree of human thinking about how can someone cleverly abuse this? How can someone make the thing do a thing that it otherwise shouldn't be doing? Adam, we really appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, Do you have any upcoming events that you would like to talk about? So next month in November, I'm going to be doing a set of trainings at Embedded Security Days in Vienna. I understand that's a long that's a long way away, but that's the next public thing I'm doing. Most of what I do these days is in private, working with customers, and so not a lot that's out there to plug. And we look forward to your talk, of course, next week in Portland. Look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, at the OWASP chapter meeting, that's going to be downtown and uh, look up uh, meetups or on the OWASP PDX website for more information. Once again, thank you so much for everybody uh, for coming together today and talking about an important subject, and that's threat modeling. Thank you all. Thank you so much, Adam. Yeah, thanks. This podcast is brought to you by the Portland, Oregon chapter of the Open Web Application Security Project. OWASP. Check us out online and see how we're making the web a more secure place. Music is by Tomu and Animoy. And my name is John Whiteman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>